If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Cheers to a great day and this ice cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a meaty middle by Neil Whitman about why the word troops can refer to the number of individuals or the number of groups, and a tidbit from Edwin Battistella about repetitive phrases such as, it is what it is. A lot of people have written to me about phrases like that over the years. But one quick announcement before we get to troops. If you'd like an ad-free version of this podcast and a monthly bonus episode, we're now doing that through Stitcher Premium. Get a free trial at stitcherpremium.com grammar and use the offer code grammar. And now, on to the show. Memorial Day is next week, when we in the U.S. honor members of the military who've died in the line of duty. So in today's episode, I'll answer a question some readers have had about the word troops. Alicia writes, I have a question about the use of the word troops to mean individual soldiers. For the longest time, when I heard a phrase like, the president is asking Congress to send 10,000 more troops, I thought the speaker meant that 10,000 troops of soldiers were being sent. Then in my mind, I would try to calculate how many individual soldiers that would actually mean. Eventually, I realized that the word troop is being used to mean individual soldiers, and I wonder why we don't just say soldiers. Alicia isn't alone. Unfortunately, the plural noun troops is ambiguous. One of its meanings is indeed a group of soldiers. The Random House Dictionary defines troop as, quote, an armored cavalry or cavalry unit consisting of two or more platoons and a headquarters group, unquote. The American Heritage Dictionary defines it as, quote, a unit of cavalry, armored vehicles, or artillery in a European army, corresponding to a platoon in the U.S. Army, unquote. Under those definitions, two troops could be upwards of several dozen people. The grammatical term for this kind of word, by the way, is a collective noun. Other collective nouns include family and group. However, when a news report mentions some number of troops, it's almost certainly talking about that many service members. In other words, troops is being used as a non-collective noun. How did the word troops come to have this ambiguity, and is it okay to use it this way? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, troop entered the language in the mid-1500s, and you can find many early examples of it referring to units of cavalry in phrases like 10 troops of horses and dragoons, 
meaning ten groups of heavily armored mounted soldiers. But in the 1700s, examples begin to appear in which troop is no longer a collective noun, in which a thousand troops means a thousand men. For example, in Volume 4 of Memoirs of Great Britain and Ireland, published in 1787, the historian Sir John Dalrymple estimates the yearly expenses for 1,000 English troops and also refers to this group as 1,000 men. There's also a source from 1744 that refers to 16,000 troops and clearly means 16,000 individuals. The usage probably goes back even earlier, but without a lot of historical knowledge, it's hard to say. Although writers have been using troops in a non-collective way to refer to individuals for close to 300 years, until recently it usually happened with large, round numbers in the hundreds or thousands. That may have caused some confusion, but complaints about it seem to have surfaced relatively recently. The earliest I've found is in Barbara Walraff's book, Word Court, published in the year 2000 in a letter from one of her readers. Complaints have increased as news reports coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan tell about small numbers of military personnel being injured or killed by roadside bombs or guerrilla attacks. Sentences such as five troops were killed today really draw attention to the ambiguity. So why do people use non-collective troops to refer to small numbers? At least in the modern era, it's useful for talking about members of more than one branch of the armed forces. You can't always replace the word troops with soldiers, because under some definitions, soldiers refers only to members of the army, with marines used for the Marine Corps, sailors for the Navy, and airmen for the Air Force. In fact, airmen brings up another benefit of the noun troops, non-sexist language. Even a cover term like servicemen excludes women who serve in the armed forces. Troops avoids this problem and is shorter than service members or members of the armed forces. Currently, you'll find a continuum of opinions about non-collective troops. The most restrictive position is that you shouldn't use it at all, whether you're mentioning numbers or not. In an essay for NPR in 2007, linguist John McWhorter argued that non-collective troops trivializes individual soldiers, a feeling we've also heard from listeners and readers. In 2008, author Susan Jacoby made the same point in her book, The Age of American Unreason. A slightly less restrictive position is that non-collective troops is okay as long as you don't mention any numbers— The Associated Press takes an even less restrictive position. In AP style, non-collective troops is okay by itself to indicate a vague number of military personnel, or with large round numbers. But using troops with small specific numbers is out. Laxer still is Brian Garner's position in the fourth edition of Modern English Usage. Non-collective troops can refer to any number of individuals greater than one— Two troops, yes. One troop, no. The laxest position of all is that troops or troop can refer to any number of individuals, including one. Though one troop may seem to be a recent development, you can find examples of the singular noun troop referring to one service member from throughout the past couple of decades. In 1990, President George Bush used it in a speech during the Persian Gulf Crisis— 
Some veterans who served in the 20th century recall being addressed as troop. The Oxford English Dictionary even has an example from 1853 of the singular noun troop referring to one soldier. Our advice is to go with the AP's position and use troops by itself or with large round numbers to refer to service members. The quick and dirty tip, the OO in troops looks like the two zeros you'll find at the end of big round numbers, such as 100 or 1,000. For smaller numbers, troops or troop isn't wrong, but many readers find it confusing or even ridiculous, so you should reword your sentences to avoid the problem. Use a specific term, such as soldiers or marines, if appropriate. If not, use service members or service men or service women, if appropriate. If that is unacceptably awkward, then use troops as a last resort. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar. He blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com and tweets as literalminded. A couple of times a week, I hear someone remark, it is what it is, accompanied by a weary sigh. I'm always puzzled over this expression a little bit, thinking, what else could it be? It is what it is is a literal tautology, an apparently needless repetition intended to convey something more. Overused, it's become a cliché reflecting a too-easy acceptance of bad situations. It is what it is is not alone. Tautologies abound from what will be will be, in the Spanish version, que sera, sera, to the assertive, I am what I am, and the biblical, I am that I am. There's Yogi Berra's It Ain't Over Till It's Over, and there's A Man Got to Do What a Man Got to Do from The Grapes of Wrath, later morphed to A Man's Gotta Do What a Man's Gotta Do. These clausal tautologies often share a grammatical form. The subject-predicate pair is repeated within the subject. What will be will be. A man gotta do what a man gotta do. Or within the predicate. It is what it is. I am what I am. By stating the obvious in such an obvious way, such expressions force us to look beyond the literal for meaning. Hearers infer inevitability and acceptance, or in some instances, hope and grit. Clause tautologies aren't the only kind. Noun tautologies assert that something, some noun, is itself. Food is food. Tires are tires. War is war. A win is a win. The grammar denies the existence of difference within a category, seeming to say that all foods, all tires, wars, wins, etc. are the same. The denial of difference can sometimes evoke an obligation, as in a promise is a promise, meaning that all promises should be honored. Noun tautologies can also be expressed with the verb means, emphasizing the need to take a word literally, as in no means no, or Brexit means Brexit. When noun tautologies are set in the future tense, or in the past, additional nuance arises. We see this in Boys Will Be Boys, or I Remember When Books Were Books. The first points to some extreme aspect of male behavior, attributing it to immaturity and implying its inevitability. The second points to a missing but idealized quality of books, such as physicality or literary quality, 
Tautologies can also be used in conditional sentences with if. Here, both meanings are possible, either the cancellation or emphasis of difference. If he's mad, he's mad, can imply a nonchalance about someone's anger. If he's mad, he's mad, there's nothing I can do about it. Or it might, with a slightly different intonation, the stress on the second mad, indicate extreme anger. He doesn't often get angry, so if he's mad, he's mad. Likewise, if it's late, it's late, can imply nonchalance on the part of a student. If it's late, it's late, who cares? Or reinforcement of the obligation on the part of the professor. If it's late, it's late, even by a minute. And if a deadline enforcer says, if it's late, it's late, the response might be, but it's not late, late. Here, repetition indicates that the canonical meaning of late is intended. It's not late, late, it's just a little late. This usage is here to stay. Billy Collins' poem, After the Funeral, begins with the line, when you told me you needed a drink, drink, and not just a drink like a drink of water. And a recent New Yorker cartoon by Emily Flake is captioned, I mean, I guess we take your insurance, but we don't like take, take your insurance. Well, that's that. I'm sure you agree that enough is enough. That segment was written by Edwin L. Battistella, who teaches linguistics and writing at Southern Oregon University in Ashland. He's the author of Do You Make These Mistakes in English? Bad Language? and the logic of markedness. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all my old articles and podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. And tell a friend about the show. Last week, my husband talked to an English teacher who had never heard of Grammar Girl. So don't assume all your language-loving friends already know. Finally, thank you for the nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, Avatar Lover 35, who listens while cleaning a horse stall in Victoria Island, Canada, and Friends of Enos, who's a former high school English teacher. That's all. Thanks for listening. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. 
Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.